As we come to chapter 7, we pick up where David has brought the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem, to the city of David. They're in Jerusalem. The capital of Israel is now established under David as being in Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is going to be the central city of the entire planet ever since. And it's, this is where it all began with David. And he's established as the king. He's establishing himself even more as the king. And he's got things to do. Like God has raised him up. It's taken a, a, quite a journey being persecuted by Saul for all those years. And then seven and a half years being over the tribe of Judah. And then being reconciled to all the tribes of Israel. But the things promised have all come to pass now. And David is the great king over all Israel. And we pick it up with that background. Chapter 7, verse 1. Now it came to pass when the king was dwelling in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all of his enemies all around him that the king said to Nathan the prophet, Now see now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells inside tent curtains. He's referring to the uh, tabernacle where the ark of the covenant was. Then Nathan said to the king, Go do all that's in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But it happened that night that the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build a house for me to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the time that I brought the children of Israel up from Egypt, even to this day. That's about 400 years. But have now, have, but have moved about in a tent and in a tabernacle. Wherever I have moved about with the children of all Israel, I, have I ever spoken a word to anyone from the tribes of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, the Lord, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people, over Israel. And I have been with you wherever you've gone. And I've cut all your enemies off from before you. And I've made you a great name, like the name of great men who are on the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more. Nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them anymore, as previously, since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and have caused you to rest from all your enemies. Also the Lord tells you that he will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed or offspring after you, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men, but my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul when I removed, whom I removed before you. And your house, and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. And according to all these words and according to all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. So here's Nathan the prophet. He has another big role coming up in chapter 11. He's the voice of the Lord, and God's using him. So Samuel's gone. He's in eternity, and is a new prophet. It's Nathan, and God has spoken to him here, to David. It is noteworthy that David had the idea to do something great for the Lord. Remember, they just, had, they just brought the Ark of the Covenant, that central place of worship that represented the presence of the Lord, the Ten Commandments in there over the gold-plated chest and the angels and all that. It's a central place of worship, the Ark of the Covenant. And they just brought it up to Jerusalem. And so David's excited about the things of the Lord. And he's like, let's build a temple. I mean, we think like that, right? We're human beings. It's like, hey, let's, let's get an upgrade. Let's upgrade God's dwelling place. 
And so it would make sense that David would think that way because he's building his own house, city of David, all this stuff. It's like, oh, God's living in a tent, tent here. You know, let's, let's give God an upgrade. But God says, it's all right. I mean, I'm, I'm just fine here. But it's noteworthy that David, Nathan says to David, do what's in your heart. And so often we will presume that because someone's spirit-filled and they have a good idea, that it's the idea that God has for us, right? You learn as you go on in life that just because it's a good motive, a godly idea, and, and could have a good thing for the Lord doesn't mean necessarily it's something that the Lord has for us. Even Paul the Apostle, there in the book of Acts, in his second journey, he had the vision and the idea from his heart to go to Bithynia and do ministry there. And, the, and it says the Holy Spirit forbid him. So, like, he had a good idea, but it just wasn't for the Lord. And I think as you grow in the Lord and you go forward in the Lord, there'll be times that you have a, a ministry idea, a good idea. It's all good, but it's not... It's just not your thing. I had the unique experience of presenting some good ideas to Pastor Chuck Smith at Calvary Coast Mesa. I didn't really know what I wanted to do in ministries after we came back from Vermont. But I was, you know, I wanted to do a surf movie. I wanted to do this. I wanted to do that. These different ideas. And I, I joke about it, but some of you know, I, I asked Pastor Chuck for money three times, and I was 0 for 3. Uh, <laughs> I was 0 for 3. Uh, you, know, hey, you know, ring him up, right? But... In hindsight, it really was the Lord because he was able to just listen to me and realize that they were good ideas, but I just didn't really have the fire. Like, it just wasn't really for me. And one I particularly remember was that this idea to start making Christian surf movies. Sunriders had been extremely successful in the late 80s and then Wave of Life that we did in the early 90s. So it's late 90s, I have this idea like, you know, we could do these Christian surf movies, and it would just be so impactful. And it was like an idea and it would seem to make sense. Oh, Joey Brand, the former pro surfer, we can do this. I did, we did, we produced Wave of Life. I was in Sunriders. But I, I just think when I went to Chuck and presented it, it just, it didn't resonate. And he knew it wasn't the Lord. And what's really cool about that is it wasn't the Lord. Because when it didn't happen, I was like, okay, that's, that's the way that goes. You know, when it's really in you, you find a way, right? Like the wise man scales, a wise woman scales the city wall, you find a way. I was like, oh, okay. So like I go and ask for 50 grand. He says, no. I'm like, okay, just move on to the next thing. Well, that only justifies the reason why he wouldn't give me 50 grand, right? The cool thing was, though, is our good friend Brian Jennings from Walking on Water, at the same time he, who's an evangelist, had a vision for Christian surf movies. And like eventually he had mortgaged his house to fund his movie called Walking on Water. And he had a run of about six, seven, eight movies that were extremely successful. He was an evangelist as his primary calling. And for 20 years, he went on a run doing all these movies that have, still have incredible fruit. I had the vision. Actually, I was going to call the movie Lost and Found. And then it just didn't, didn't happen. So it's okay if you have good ideas. Like, it's your heart to go on a mission trip and it doesn't happen. That's okay. Like, if you had the idea, like, I'm going to go to YWAM and it didn't happen. That's okay. It, it, it just... It's good that you had a good idea, but sometimes it's not meant to be. And that's what I really like about this story, because David's like, I want to build a great house for the Lord. And Nathan's like, of course, you're King David. You can do what you want. Build a house for the Lord. And the Lord's like, I didn't say that. Just because it's a good idea and it's spiritual doesn't mean it's what I have. So that's why it's so important to trust in the Lord with all of our heart, lean not on our own understanding, and acknowledge him in all of our ways, and let him direct our path. He'll really confirm what he has for us. The fire, because we'll delight ourselves in the Lord, Psalm 37, 4, and he'll give us the desires of our heart. And he'll put the fire there, and he'll give us the mojo and the hustle to get it on and go after it, and it'll happen. But then sometimes you feel that way anyways, but he just says it's not for you. 
And you might even get down the road to Bithynia thinking this is the Lord. And then the Lord's like, this is not for you. Turn around. And that's okay. So if you ever felt like you wanted to build the temple and the prophet said, that's a great idea. Do it. And then the next day the prophet's like, that's not for you to do. You just receive it. It, it. It's okay. That's okay. Also here, God says, in fact, you, you're, you're about doing. David's about doing. So you're going to do this for me. But David, let me help you understand something. I've already done it. Right? By grace you've been saved, that through faith, not of works, so that anyone should boast, for we are his workmanship. And it's within the human nature to want to work to accomplish something, and you naturally get the rewards. You're hustling on the sales division, and you sales woman of the month, and you get the award at the end of the year. And, you know, I mean, like, that's just a, a natural thing. But we can never think like that with the Lord. Because we are all saved through faith in Jesus Christ, and we're saved by grace. We, we, do, we never earn our salvation. We, I think we understand that here tonight. As many as received him, he gave them the right to become the children of God. So we have to receive the Lord by faith, and then the Spirit, as we just sang that Holy Ghost song with Danny, that was a beautiful song, by the way. The Spirit does the work. The work is, first of all, in us. Then it's through us. So David's like, oh, I'm going to build a temple, a house for the Lord. And the Lord's like, actually, sit down, and I'm going to build a house for you. You're thinking about building me a house that will last generations. I'm going to build you a house that's an everlasting house. And, of course, this passage is considered a prophetic text concerning Jesus Christ because, of course, Jesus is a descendant of King David through the Virgin Mary. And this promise is brought to pass that Jesus is not just the king of Israel, which is what they put on the cross when he's crucified, but he's the king of kings when he comes in glory. The fulfillment of this promise made to David 3,000 years ago will be fully manifested to the entire human race when every eye will see him, even those that pierced him, when he comes in glory with the clouds and splits the Mount of Olives and establishes the kingdom. When Jesus comes to establish his righteous kingdom on planet Earth, prophesied so many times in such great detail in the Old Testament, that will be the fulfillment of this passage to the fullest sense. Christ will reign on planet Earth. Jesus will come in his glory, and he will reign from Jerusalem from the city of David, and all these wonderful prophecies that have yet to happen, they will happen. So this is so beautiful, because like, Lord, I'm going to do this for you, and the Lord's like, hey, I've already done it for you, and I can one-up you on this one, because this is what I'm going to do through you. And so it's a wonderful promise concerning the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ, and really the church, and the establishment of his kingdom on earth, and the reconciliation and the restoration of all things, and who can fully fathom it? But it's going to come to pass. Because when God says that your throne will be established forever, it is. And it's not the limited to time, space, and matter of thinking of just the throne of David and his descendants that were on the genealogies of the New Testament and so on and so forth. But really, it's Jesus himself. He's, he's the great king. So it'll be returned to the king. The king did come a thousand years later. That's why Jesus was called son of David. He took the title of David. But when he comes a second time, it's, it's the return of the king to establish the kingdom, and we'll see this brought to pass. So it's just a wonderful reminder that so often we're about the doing, but the Lord's like, let's, let's be focused on the receiving. So often we can be like Mary, and we want to be busy, and the Lord, excuse me, be like Martha, and we want to be busy. And I was like, just be like Mary and sit at my feet, and let me just minister to you what I've done for you, what I want to do in you, and then then, you know, you're going to go out there and do what I have for you through you. 
Because so many of us really want to run ahead and do some great thing in the name of God, and we see lots of people in ministry out there doing stuff, but you wonder, is it perspiration or inspiration? And is it effective and efficient? Is it, are they called? Or is it just something they're doing to themselves because they're just going to do it because that's what they do? And I ask myself the same question, so I'm not just saying for any other men and women in ministry. I just think you can do it. When we wake up and want to serve the Lord, it's grace that, that cleanses us from failures, that encourages us for a new day, and it's grace that strengthens us for the things that God is doing because it's God who wills and works in us for his good pleasure. He's the one that, that's why I say we come from victory, because he's established it, and he's just working it through us. And it's a good reminder right here on this wonderful prophetic promise concerning Jesus Christ. Now, we read on in verse 18. Then King David went out, went in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you've brought me this far? And yet this was a small thing in your sight, O Lord God. You have also spoken to your servant's house for a great while to come. In other words, he promised for generations to come. In this manner of man, O Lord God, now what more can David say to you? For you, Lord God, know your servant. For your word's sake and according to your own heart, you've done all these great things to make your servant know them. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, nor is there any God besides you, according to all that you've heard with our ears, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people, like Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem for himself as a people to make for himself a name and to do for yourself great and awesome deeds for your land before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt the nations and their gods for you have made your people Israel your own very own people forever and you Lord have become their God now O Lord God the word which you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house establish it forever and do as you said so let your name be magnified forever saying the Lord of hosts is God over Israel and let the house of your servant David be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, have revealed this to your servant, saying, I will build your house. Therefore, your servant has found it in his heart to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you've promised this goodness to your servant. Now, therefore, let it please you to bless the house of your servant, that it may continue before you forever. For you, O Lord God, have spoken it. And with your blessings, let the house of your servant be blessed forever. So David gets this great promise concerning his future descendants and all that's going to happen. And seriously, we need to think about this where for centuries, for a millennium, the offspring of David just kept happening that it's so important that this precious young virgin in Nazareth, Mary, is a descendant from this line to be the virgin to bring our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, into the world to the fulfillment of these things. And so David is just overwhelmed by this promise and the grace that is directly imputed or directed at him in his house specifically. And so we think about this, like how, how much more can we be as the church and followers of Jesus Christ in, in any generation of the church, but in our generation right now? All the promises that God has are in Christ Jesus, and they are yes and amen. And as we wrap up the first half of this year tonight, we just are, we're just reminded like, it's like going into the year at halftime, like going in the locker room, like a football game. It's halftime, we're going in, and we're reminded all the promises are yes and amen. You know, what's the halftime game plan? Stand in, stand in faith. 
go forward in the promises. What's our confidence? <laughs> We're coming from victory because Jesus is Lord. Like all the blessings and promises. And, I, and I've been saying this, and it's just so important to understand when we have Christ and we're saved through faith and we're saved by the blood and we have the spirit, born in the spirit, where it all goes together and we have the hope, we have all the promises. We have all the promises. And because in the human experience, we might compare ourselves to someone more successful or less successful at work, in the family or in life, we naturally use human standards by which we think, oh, someone's got a little more than this, than that person, whatever. But as we're in this room, as, as a local church, there is no variation to the universal promises to the follower of Jesus Christ, saved by faith. They are absolutely all ours. And I, and I say this, I have a, a promised Bible recently given to me, a, 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 the promises of the Bible, and it's alphabetical with different topics. And it's a living Bible, like from the 60s. It's like a historical thing. It's hard to get. you got to get in a bookstore or find it somewhere, you know, on, online, whatever. But it's an easy read, and you're just reading these promises, and it's like, this promise is for me. This promise is for me. This promise is for me. It's like, and these promises are for you. And I, I can give you this promise, promises of the Bible book. And you could read it in your time in the morning and the afternoon. And it, it would have the same promise to you. It's not like, oh, these promises are for Joey Brandon Huntington Beach and his wife and his kids and his descendants and his children's children. No, they're for all of us in Jesus' name. We have all the promises in Jesus Christ. We have none of the promises outside of Jesus Christ. It's, we have all the promises. When you're in, you're in. And we're saved by faith, and that's how we're in. So tonight, we're people of joy and rejoicing because we have all the promises. And our God is a blessing God. He blesses with all things pertaining to life and godliness and the things we truly need. The transformation of our person and our character by the Spirit to make us more like Christ, which is the, that is the greatest promise of all. The greatest promise of all is to wake up more like Jesus tomorrow than we were today. Like, what can be better than that? Because mark that woman, she's blessed, and the way of her life will be peace and joy. And the same for the man. Like that, just that I don't have to be stuck being Joey Brand from 1979 or 89 or 99 or 09. Like, that's really good news for me. I, I don't want to be like, I want to be the upgrade on the car. Because Luke works for Hyundai, we, have, we get great deals on Hyundai, so we have this, this year's Santa Fe. It's a nice car. And it's a great deal. Friends of the family, right? Good for us. We raise him right. He's smart. He makes money. He gives a good deal on a car. So good for us. You know, who knows? It can go any way with your kids, but it worked out well for us. But I, I, we really like this car. We've had all kinds of different cars. You know, cars become like children or, you know what I'm saying, like cars take on personalities. And I, this is my favorite car in a long time. And, and I see other Santa Fe's like 2020, 2018. I'm like, well, that's nice. But that's a, that's a 2017 Santa Fe, right? We do that. You get a new car, it's like my new car. You get a new truck, you're like, oh, you got your new truck. Like, mm, me, me woman truck, me guy truck, right? But then next year, there's a new truck. And your truck just got upgraded, right? And what do you want? You want you, if you could, you'd be like, you know, it would be sweet if I could just show up at the dealership and give them this truck and get that truck for everything the same. Same monthly payment, same insurance. It's just you would, you would go for the upgrade, right? Like, you would do that. If you bought a brand new car, and you've got it for three to five years, whatever. If you could go to the dealership and get the upgrade of that model for 
the same price, same insurance. Wouldn't you do that? You'd want the upgrade. Well, that's the promises of God for the follower of Christ. Because we're all getting an upgrade by the power of the Holy Spirit through faith in Jesus Christ. And your upgrade is a benefit to the world because you being upgraded in the Holy Spirit and a better version of you, our sins and failures of the past, one day behind us, uh, our the ministry of the Spirit right in front of us today and the hope and the promises for tomorrow in front of us. Like that's, that's the upgrade. So all these promises that are blessings, they always begin with the transformation of our character to become more like Christ. Like 2 Corinthians says, now we see as in a mirror being transformed from glory to glory. That the greatest of all the blessings and promises of God are to deliver us from our pride, our sin, the world, the flesh, and the devil. That's where all the good... Now, once you get those blessings, then all the other blessings are like... It's just like, yeah. Both, you know, like... It's like when you get... Like, I love angel food cake. It's my favorite. And on my birthday, I always want, like, homemade... Jennifer makes the best angel food cake. Homemade. And so you get the angel food cake and the chocolate frosting, but, you know, I, I want the sprinkles, too. Like, and then I want not cheap ice cream. No, no, no. Not like the ice cream you had when you went to school, public school, and you had ice cream. You're like, no, 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 no. Neapolitan, no, no cheap ice cream. When is my birthday? I have really good angel food cake with really good frosting, like naughty frosting, like with all the hydrogenated vegetable oils, that kind of frosting. And then you put the sprinkles on. I was like, no, I want the really good ice cream too. And my grandkids really like it too. Belsley will just eat it till he's sick from it. I want all of it. So see, like, once you, once you have, understand those blessings as they affect you and your person and your character for eternity, then you realize these blessings affect how you get to interact with other people. Your access to the Father in prayer, your faith, how you, how you learn to bless other people, how you learn to forgive other people, how you grow and go forward. You just, every other blessing goes from that. You got the angel food cake. You got, so now here comes the frosting, the sprinkles, the really good ice cream. Like, you're just blessings upon blessings. So when God showers blessings upon you, economically, financially, or things like that, great health and all those kind of things, that's just on top of everything. Because the real blessing is on the day of the Lord being more like Jesus than you were the day before. That's the real blessing to grow and go forward. Everything else is just really good ice cream. It's just really good ice cream. But the foundation has become like Christ. So I just remind us tonight, when David says, your words are true, you've promised this goodness to your servant, and you have spoken it, and you're going to bless, and you've blessed forever. And I just look at all of our lives tonight and say, yes and amen. So make sure you say it too. We, in Jesus' name, are blessed forever. And no matter what yesterday was, these promises are for today and tomorrow. We are blessed forever. And it is forward, onward, and upward with the promises and the blessings. Chapter 8. You you get the blessings, and then you got to fight these things that just, ah, the Amalekites, these people, they never go away. We'll talk about that. Chapter 8. After this, it came to pass that David attacked the Philistines and subdued them. And David took Methig Amma from the hand of the Philistines. Then he defeated Moab, forced them down to the ground. He measured them off with a line. With two lines, he measured them off. Those be put to death with one full line, and those be kept alive. So the Moabites came, became David's servants and brought tribute, taxes. David also defeated Hadadazir, the son of Rehob, the king of Zobah, and he went to recover his territory at the river Euphrates. That was going toward Iraq. 
David took from him 1,000 chariots, 700 horsemen, 20,000 foot soldiers. Also, David hamstrung all the chariot horses, except that he spared enough of them for 100 chariots. He fully disarmed them. He made them a non-threatening nation, like how people want to do that with certain countries right now, right? You, you, you're, you're, you're non-nuclear proliferation. Like you, he, that's David did. He disarmed his future enemies. Like you're, you're not a threat. He just took all their weapons. Verse 5. When the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadadezer, king of Zobad, David killed 22,000 Syrians. Then David put garrisons in Syria of Damascus. And the Syrians became David's servant and brought tribute. So the Lord preserved David wherever he went, and David took the shield of gold, the shields of gold that belonged to the servants of Hadadezer. And he brought them to Jerusalem, also from Bethah and from Berathai, cities of Hadadezer. David took a large amount of bronze. Yeah, the winner gets the prizes, and David's the winner. When Toy, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated all the armies of Hadadazer, then Toy sent Joram, his son, to King David to greet him and bless him, because he had fought against Hadadazer and defeated him. For Hadadazer had been at war with Toi. Allegiances, right? That's what the world does. And Joram brought with him articles of silver, articles of gold, articles of bronze. King David also dedicated these to the Lord, along with the silver and the gold that he had dedicated from all the nations which he had subdued. From Syria, from Moab, and from the people of Amnon, from the Philistines, from Amalek, and from the spoil of Hadadazer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobad. And David made himself a name when he returned from killing 18,000 Syrians in the Valley of Salt. He also put garrisons in Edom. Throughout all Edom he put garrisons, and all the Edomites became David's servant. And the Lord preserved David wherever he went. So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered judgment and justice to all his people. Joab, the son of Zariah, was over the army. Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilab, was recorder. Zadok of Ahitub and Amalek, the son of Abitar, were priests. Sariah was a scribe. Benaiah, the son of Jehoiadiah, was over both the Cherethites and the Pelethites. And David's sons were chief ministers. David is, this is sort of, well, not sort of, this is the zenith of his kingdom being established. It's like when you start a business and it's all going good and you're just, it's all going good. Like everything is going so good for David and Israel right now. This is the best it's been in a long time. God said in the previous chapter, it's not going to be like it was in the book of Judges during the time of Judges. You're, you're established. And suddenly, suddenly it's all changed. Think about this. In the book of Judges, there's a cycle of being oppressed by oppressors, crying out for deliverance, the Lord raising up a judge, deliverance for a while, and then they fall back into sin, backslide, and then it repeats the cycle. The book of Judges is a cycle of sin, of forgiveness, backsliding, restoration, sin, backsliding. It's the cycle. But that cycle ended with Samuel. He was the last of the judges. And that's not the standard. And sometimes we just need to be reminded it's not the way it used to be. Just, sometimes you just need to radically change it up. Our look, where we live, our life, everything. New job. Like just sometimes it's got to be, it's just, man, total change up. What was is not the way it is. And God is saying, being in a cycle of going in circles as a nation in the time of judges, that's over. This is the time of the king. And I've established this king. And I've promised this king. And it's not what this king's doing for me. It's what I'm doing for him and for all my people, Israel, who I've redeemed, who I've called out of Egypt, who I've established. And I'm establishing you. So what you're used to is where you've had defeat, now you're going to have victory. And chapter 8, I mean, it's, you can't really compare it to sports, but if it was sports, man, you're giving everyone a beatdown. Like, this is a beatdown. You notice that they're not losing? This is like a, a, a perfect season. 
<laughs> they didn't lose anything. David's like, wham, the Philistines, the Moabites, boom. Amalekites, Edomites, Syrians, what? what? Like, this is just, he's got the blessings of the Lord. He's got the promises of the Lord. Israel's being established. The territory is promised hundreds of years before to Joshua through the book of Mo, Mo, books of Moses, and it's all happening right now. They've got great central leadership, the man who has a heart for God, and it is just fantastic. It's about as good as it can be politically and spiritually for any people at any time in human history. I was talking with Pasha today from Russia, and we were talking about politics, which I rarely do unless I'm talking with the Russian, because that's fun. And he, and he said, he said uh, human beings are terrible saviors. Because <laughs> they are. He was speaking like kings. He's like, with his Russian accent. Ah, da, da, da. Just terrible saviors. Humans make terrible saviors. Only Jesus is savior. <laughs> Just the way he said it, it was like, you know, coming from a Russian, you know, like, like a Soviet Union style. It's like, ah, da, da. Humans make terrible saviors. Terrible saviors. He's like, yeah, they, but don't humans want human saviors? Like, don't we, like, every election we're looking for human saviors. At least in the temple, we want, I mean, we'll be honest, we want things better than they were, right? Like, we want righteousness to be established, right? We get it, we understand that. But even the best make terrible saviors. So look at this guy, David. Total victory. When you think of political groups that are hostile to God, when you think of groups of people and their ideologies and their philosophies, and in the context of the Old Testament, where they're trying to destroy your existence and your, 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 your covenant, your relationship with God, we don't, obviously, this is Old Testament. But David just put them in their place. But the crazy thing is, the enemies of the kingdom... Just because you put one generation in their place doesn't mean you're not going to... The next generation is going to rise up anyways. As long as until Christ comes back and splits the Mount of Olives, no matter how many times you subdue, subdue Edomites, Syrians, and Perizzites, and you know, Amalekites, and Moabites, they just keep coming back. It's like the world, the flesh, and the devil. It just keeps coming back. You can have victory in your life or... Two decades with these areas of sins and temptations. But if you're not guarding it, here come the parasites. Here, here come the Amalekites. Oh, look at the Assyrians, you know. Because the devil goes about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And he left Jesus until what? An opportune time. And it never ceases to amaze me like, wow. The battle just goes on till the last day. The enemies of Christ, demonic, principalities and powers. The enemies of our soul demonic principalities and powers and the tools they use temporal carnal fleshly worldly you can have a, a perfect season against them one year and hamstring their chariots and their horses and everything else but believe me you they're going to come back in the springtime and start all over again and you better be ready for it and there's just no time to cruise in in the cruise lane in the human experience with the lord because this is going to be David's great downfall in chapter 11. Because chapter 11, when he commits adultery with Bathsheba, it's that famous opening. In the spring, the time when kings go to war, David stayed home in the palace. So once you're not going to go fight the good fight, 
you're going to get rolled by the flesh. So we got to always fight the good fight. And David, the Lord established him, and the Lord establishes us, but just because we're established doesn't mean we're in cruise control. He establishes us, and then we have to fight the good fight. We have to fight of prayer. We have to confront evil in our own life and confront and, and speak truth against evil. And, and, and that's why the Bible says, having done all, stand. We stand. We fight the good fight. And our weapons of God are in God, and they're not carnal, and they're mighty for tearing down strongholds, and we fight the good fight. And David fought the good fight. But notice, when he's fighting the battles that God has entrusted to him to protect his people in a geopolitical sense, we're told twice at verse 6, and then again in verse farther down, verse 16, that the Lord preserved David wherever he went. And so long as we're walking in obedience to the Lord, and the battle is the Lord's, he is going to preserve us and give us the victory, because the battle belongs to the Lord. And like David said, some men trust in chariots, but we will trust in the name of our God. Even when he fought Goliath, the battle is the Lord. So there's a young teenager well, he's a teenager, a young man, so probably an upper-end teenager. When he runs, when Goliath's talking trust, he runs right at Goliath and he says, the battle is the Lord's, and so it is. Here he is a man, 40-ish. So for the young people that attend our church, I would say like when they're learning as a senior in high school, early collegiate years, that the battle is the Lord's. Well, right, don't, wouldn't you say in your 40s, don't you know the battle is the Lord's? Jason Wright, our first well, our second youth pastor at this church, he's been in Australia now for quite some time. He posted his 40th birthday. I'm sure I know a few of you follow him on Instagram. And Jason writes 40. I was like, my goodness, I've gotten old. Because that guy was 20. And so us older people know how to do that math, right? If 20 is 40, that means, you know, 20 for him is 20 for me. Like I told my neighbor today, <laughs> I go, time's an equal opportunity abuser. It abuses us all equally, 24 hours a day. But man, as time goes on, and you have to fight those battles when you're 20, and you got to fight those battles when you're 40, when you're 55, when you're 60, when you're 70, when you're 80. Till the end, to the very end, you have to, you have to, you have to protect your headspace with the Lord, protect your heart with the Lord, and and fight the good fight, whatever it looks like. Basically, the Philistines were there in 2021. They're here in 2022. They're going to be there in 2023. And as long as you're on planet Earth, the Philistines, the Syrians, the Moabites, and the Edomites, they're, they're there. So you just cannot ever stop fighting the good fight. The fight for humility in our life, for sanctification, for obedience, for love, for forgiveness, for empathy, kindness, compassion. The fight for truth. To have a tender heart but thick skin. To fight the good fight. And having done all stand. Because I think all of us in this room tonight who would come to church on Tuesday night would agree that when we're breathing our last, we want to turn to the person next to us and say, I've kept the faith. I've finished the race. And I've fought the good fight. That is how we want to finish our last day. And that it has substance. So your children or your children's children or your neighbor or the nurse, whoever's in that room standing by you can look at you and know with the confirmation by the presence of the Lord on that moment that those words are true. David is young and strong and he's fighting a good fight and he's going to get beat up pretty good down the stretch here. The rest of this book. Still though, he's the great King David. 
His story is done and recorded for us. Our story is in front of us and being written. The Lord preserved him wherever he went. Fight the good fight. He'll always preserve us. Chapter 9. Now David said, Is there still anyone who's left in the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Jonathan, the son of Saul, of course, David's best friend who was killed in the battle with Saul. And there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. So when they had called him to David, the king said to him, Hey, are you Ziba? And he said, At your service. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan who is lame in his feet. So the king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, Indeed, he's in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, in Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him out of the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, from Lodabar. And now when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, had come to David, he fell on his face and prostrated himself. And then David said, Mephibosheth? And he answered, Here is your servant. And so David said to him, Do not fear, for I will surely show you kindness for Jonathan, your father's sake. And I'll restore to you all the land of Saul, your grandfather, and you shall eat bread at my table continually. And then he bowed himself and said, What is your servant that you should look upon such a dead dog as I? Man, this is definitely Jonathan's son, right? Look at this guy. His humility. Man, this is beautiful. Verse 9. Then the king called Aziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, Hey, I've given to your master's son all that belongs to Saul and to all of his house. You, therefore, and your sons and your servants shall work the land for him. You shall bring in the harvest that your master's son may have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's son, shall eat bread at my table always. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. And then Ziba said to the king, According to all the Lord the king has commanded servants, so will your servant do. As for Mephibosheth, said the king, he shall eat at my table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a son whose son's name was Micah. And all who dwelt in the house of Ziba were servants of Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem, for he ate continually at the king's table, and he was lame in both of his feet. What a beautiful story, because again, David was never against the house of Saul. And any story in the Bible and in the human experience that shows us forgiveness, compassion, and empathy toward our enemies is just a beautiful story. Those are the most beautiful stories of anything that you watch is when people forgive. It's just so beautiful when we're not ensnared by bitterness and we're gracious and empathetic and compassionate to those, and even the sense of those who might have caused us grief. David, again, we're told he has a heart after God, and here we see it, because this is the heart of Jesus. Not only with that ability to just forgive the descendants of those who caused him so much heartache and sorrow, and even make a distinction, because think about this. This is Michael's nephew, right? So David's first wife, this is her nephew, because Jonathan's her brother, and this is the son. So the woman who last chapter is taunting David in last week's study and just refuses to participate in the blessings and chooses to be filled with bitterness, this is her nephew. And it just shows that we all make our own choices. You know, there's a whole house of Saul left, right? And Michael's bitter, but here's this physically handicapped son of Jonathan, the nephew, who could blame, he could be so bitter toward life because when his father died and his grandfather died, the great King Saul, and all the inheritance he was in line for, it all ended. 
the, the decline of the house of Saul, because we already read, the house of Saul got weaker and weaker and weaker, and the house of David got stronger and stronger and stronger. So think about this kid growing up. All of his life, he's growing up, he's crippled because the nurse dropped him when he was five, running in haste to preserve his life when Saul and Jonathan, his grandfather and dad, died on the same day. And he's like a kindergartner. And in the haste, some adults mistake, and there are negligible adults that make huge mistakes that affect children. It's not a car wreck, because things like this happen, a drinking parent, right? And you get a car accident, maybe the kid gets paralyzed or something. These tragedies happen every day on planet Earth, every day. This kid might have a memory of walking, but it's a distant memory. How are your memories when you're four and five? I have a few. Growing up in Guam, first, the Christmas almost bit my tongue off in Guam. I was four and five. Kindergarten in Cleveland, I remember it really well. But they're just, they're almost like dreams, right? It's almost more the pictures your parents have that, that help coordinate that. This kid walked till that day, the worst day ever of his life. Grandfather dies, the king. Dad dies, heir to the throne, and you're crippled. His aunt, Michael, becomes bitter, can't be with her husband, David. She hooks up with another guy, and she's nothing but bitter. She's bitter, but look at him. He comes into David's presence, and he says, what am I, a dog? See, isn't that what David would say to Saul? You come after me now as a dog. I'm a flea. I'm not even a dog's head. I'm a flea. But remember when Admiral got worked up a couple chapters ago, like, you, you think I'm a dog's head? Remember that? So even like Uncle Abner, because you think like in a lot of cultures you call someone uncle, like in Chile, everyone's uncle, Tio, right, Tio. Tio Joey, like all the kids call me Tio. Like, so Abner is running, the, so Abner is running the, the show for seven and a half years with the remnant of Saul's kingdom. Ishabeth is Mephibosheth's relative. That would be his uncle, Right? Uncle Abner, and Abner's like, you come at me, like, oh, and all you yelling in the palace and everything, and, oh, and then Abner dies after he makes a deal with David. Uh-oh, that's not good. Tio's taken out. Then Ishabeth is assassinated by two of the people in the palace. That's not good. They just took out uncle. Auntie just got called to the palace with David. Can you imagine what life was like for Mephibosheth? But when he comes in the presence of David, he is not a bitter man. He's a better man, and he's a good man. But think about this. We already read when it came to taking the city of David, they, they had the lame, the blind, and the, and the mutes, the physically handicapped there, to repel David. And we're told that David hated the physically handicapped. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. It's like, how could David hate the physically handicapped? Because the physically handicapped were ex- uh, excluded from going to the place of worship. Because they're a physical representation of our spiritual problem. Sin spiritually affects all of us, but sin affects birth defects in animals, in humans. It affects what's wrong in the entire universe because the whole universe is groaning for deliverance from the consequence of sin, which is the law of entropy, the second law of thermodynamics. So when you see someone deformed or physical handicaps, it it, it shows you imperfection physically. You can see someone tall and handsome like King Saul. Like, you don't see the imperfections. But when you see Down syndrome, 
physically handicapped, the lame, you see the physical imperfections that are the result of sin and mutated cells that produce birth defects. And in David's mind, like so often was in that, that world and still many countries like we talked about in our world right now, it is repulsive. It is repulsive. But see, here's the beauty that we leave tonight with in this third chapter. Isn't it just like the Lord to bring someone that David would love unconditionally no matter what into his palace who is actually repulsive and is what David hates? You see, he's of course going to love Jonathan's son because David loved Jonathan, his best friend ever. David and Jonathan were the tightest of friends, like you, me, and Jesus. And Jonathan's gone. And this physically handicapped adult now is the closest link to that friendship, the best friendship David ever had in his human experience. And there is no way David can hate the son of Jonathan. In fact, it almost brings me to tears right now because all he wanted to do was bless him with everything he had. All the blessings David wanted to give Jonathan, the covenant he made with Jonathan, the things they promised each other. Jonathan would give up his robe to be the heir to the throne and said, you're going to be the king. And, and that friendship, and Jonathan's gone, and all that was there, that was, they were going to, just, they were going to, they were going to travel the world together. They're going to do all these things as best friends. And now he's looking at this lame young man and all that he ever wanted to do with his best friend. It's focused right here on this man, this lame man. And it is impossible now for David's prejudices against physical handicaps. His love for the son of Jonathan is greater than his prejudices against the physically handicaps that would repulse him in the presence of this guy. If it was anyone else, get this lame man out of here. But it is the son of Jonathan, which shows us how beautiful God works because he will break down our sexism, our racism, and our prejudices and idiosyncrasies by bringing someone into our world that will change our thinking to remove that. And you must let him do that because you do not want to be on your deathbed as a sexist, racist, or anything else. You must let him do that. Growing up in the 80s, my whole, from the Munich Olympics in 72, when those Muslim terrorists blew up the bus with the Israeli athletes, that was the most shocking thing of my life as a 12-year-old two weeks after we moved to California from the East Coast. And I associated Arabs with blowing up innocent people and wrecking the Olympics. Ten years later, the Beirut bombing, the hundreds of U.S. Marines killed by the terrorist attack on the compound. My dad was a Marine, and I associated that with Arabs. 9-11, we would associate with Arabs. I grew up with Chicanos, and we all got along great. I did not grow up with Arabs. And one of the most beautiful things from 9-11 that God did in my life is we had a, a servant on our ministry team who was Egyptian, Happy Bushra. His name was Happy. <laughs> when you think of Arabs, you generally don't think they're happy. I'm being honest, right? I, I purposely smile at all Arabs and Middle Easterners because they generally don't smile back. But I want to show them the joy of the Lord through my faith and my religion and how I believe. Happy Bushra was a Christian and is a Christian. And on that horrible day, 9-11, he was by my side. And it was like, all those 
just prejudices I had against Arabic people. They boat things up. They don't believe in Jesus. Watching Happy Bushra sob and then hear the stories of how he was treated after that happened, it just eroded that. And aren't you glad God eroded that in my life when I was 41? You might think it's okay for you to be racist against Middle Easterners, but you do not want to come to a church where the pastor is racist against Middle Easterners under any circumstance. Yes and amen? That'd be crazy. Jennifer, Jennifer Monroe goes to Afghanistan and Turkey and, and Frank, her husband, like, how would that be for me to be their pastor? Like, how can I pray for them? Buck's, Buck's over there all summer in an Islamic nation. You see, we have to let God bring the lame people into our palace that we will love because he, he, has, to, he has to throw us a curveball, a changeup, a knuckleball, so we won't be like that. David can't be that guy. Yeah, these guys are enemies. Yes, they are. That's the way it is. But you, you cannot be that way because Jesus is going to come in a thousand years and he's going to open the eyes of the blind. He's going to unplug their ears. He's going to raise the dead. He's going to make their crooked arms straight. And he's, going to raise them from, he's going to raise them up from their paralysis and tell them, pick up your bed and walk. So the, the beauty of this story to me is God, when Mephibosheth was crippled, Five years of age, it was all part of God's overall plan. Years later, decades later, to show his favorite servant, David, to help him work through prejudices and misconceptions about human beings, the gospel of grace, the word of God, and the promises of God. And isn't it beautiful? Before it all goes south of Bathsheba, that there's a lame man at the table of the king being treated like a son of the king with all the blessings of the king who a day before would have been despised by all the faulty prejudices of the king. And now he's accepted. And like we read in the Bible, we are accepted in the beloved. And Jesus Christ accepts every lame person in the human race, which is all of us. And he just crushes every sexism, racism thing that we can possibly have in the recess of our heart. And that is a beautiful thing. That is a beautiful thing with love toward all and malice toward none. So don't underestimate the lame people that Jesus brings to your table and how he brings someone that's a curveball to you like Happy Bushra to teach you they're not our enemies, but Christ died for them. And that is the great lesson of Mephibosheth feasting at the king's banqueting table.